0: You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, there's been a lot of attention about keeping people in housing during this health and economic crisis. But in what may be unprecedented in recent times is that a large number of renovated housing units will become available this Friday. The State Housing Authority is making available the first of 250 units in subsidized projects across the state. It also recently opened the list for Section 8 housing we talked to the Hawaii Housing Authority's Executive Director, Hakeem Wansafi, about how it's fared during this pandemic. Early on, Wansafi and his staff moved proactively to set aside empty units for people needing to quarantine in the event of a positive COVID-19 case in the housing projects.
1: And I think that helped. That's why we kept the infection in our housing to very minimal, uh, lower than the state average. All those steps from providing masks to- Sanitizers and instituting some laws uh, to prohibit visitors and combined with having some units as uh, just as a backup to separate the families who are tested COVID. All of that, I think combined, has definitely contributed to a very low rate for our the population that we serve.
0: Yes, because uh, you know there was great concern about these cases popping up in the Pacific Islander community, you know, the uh, largely immigrant communities. Uh, because of the close quarters.
1: Indeed, indeed. And I think we saw that back in April, we quickly figured out that if we don't do something, we may have a, a really big problem in our hands. And we started with education early on, the, the very early April, uh, going door to door and educating people in different languages. And then we instituted some rule changes, some law changes, no gathering changes, mandatory masks, staying away. Yeah, we're very grateful. Having outbreak, We knew they want if we don't control it and it spread. It's not unusual that one of our properties will have two thousand people.
0: So you have just received some additional funding from uh, the feds and uh, the state to help you rehab more of these units.
1: We want full speed ahead. we We made sure that our staff, contractors and and others, going into those units, getting them ready in record time, too. We're very successful in making sure. We also had funding, additional funding for Section 8, which allowed us to house an additional 830 families for the Section 8 program alone, in addition to, to the public housing.
0: So you are uh, opening up the, uh, the list?
1: We opened the list for Section 8 in December. We served the families December and January, 813, uh, 830 families, and that's been done already. And we are opening the list uh, April 16th at 8 a.m. until the 20th at 4.30 p.m. for specific properties for the Honolulu elderly properties, which is 62 years or older or disabled. Also for the Honolulu family, two-bedroom units at different locations. And the Leeward families, one, two, and uh, three-bedroom units. We're also opening the waitlist in Maui, uh, Kauai, and the Big Island. I think the easiest thing is for everyone to go to the pre-application that's online at hphaishereforyou.org. Uh, we created this uh, during COVID, that's uh, hphaishereforyou.org, all one word. We do have the application process is already translated in many languages that we serve, so they can choose the language they want to apply with and we also have available interpreter services via Zoom for Marshallese, Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, Chickese, and Korean.
0: How long will it take before they hear back once they apply?
1: Once they apply, within a week. So the way it's going to work, we're expecting a huge demand Uh, just to give opportunity to everyone to apply. Uh, If you're not a computer savvy, you don't need to be there waiting at 8 a.m. sharp to to quickly apply. We're giving you five days from April 16th to April 20th, once that's done, we will close the list and we'll make sure everyone qualifies under the program. Then we'll do a random lottery system where we can pick up uh, the the amount of people that we need randomly, and then everybody will be informed. Those who were picked and those who did not, and then we start the processing of paperwork for those who uh, who were picked.
0: So you're able to do this though because a lot of these. Uh, older units have been rehabbed?
1: Correct. We, we, we rehabbed hundreds of units in the last six months. Uh, uh, the, the units that, this is statewide, just, you know. We have a special team, a multi-skilled labor team that uh, concentrated on rehabbing the unit. We also, uh, during COVID, we limited contact with the tenants, so we only went to fix health and safety. and That allowed us more time to go to vacant units and concentrate on them. And in some cases, uh, units that are difficult to do, we contracted and hired uh, contractors. And on along over 250 units were made available. They're, they're available statewide. We have units available right now. The one that we can advertise and take immediate applications and serve them immediately because those units are available, those will be in the Honolulu elderly and family and the Leeward family. Then in the central elderly, of family. Uh, and we we listed in our website what those means and the name of the properties and the addresses. So we're asking uh, anyone who's interested uh, from now until the application time April 16th, go visit that property, drive by it. If it is property that you feel uh, will be good for you and your family, then be ready to apply starting April 16th, but no later than April 20th for 4.30 p.m.
0: Okay, but there are also then uh, some units available on Maui, Big Island, Kauai? correct?
1: Uh, correct, correct, and, and, and that uh, that's also, it does and will list the properties that are available.
0: Can you recall a time when we opened up so many units like this at one time?
1: At one time? Oh, my goodness. I, I cannot recall that.
0: Okay, so this is a biggie.
1: Uh, yeah, I believe so. Anytime we have more than 50 units, available at one shot, it's certainly a success for us. We do house an an average of 500 families a year. Uh, This year, we will house uh, uh, double that uh, uh, in one year.
0: How has the pandemic made it more challenging?
1: Oh, my goodness. I think the pandemic came with many challenges, but also with opportunities. The challenge is, uh, number one, is making sure we take care of our existing tenants. Uh, so anytime we need to fix something, we have to have our PPEs, we have to ask the family to step out or close the door in one of the rooms, and we have to make sure that after the work is done, we sanitize the whole thing so we don't get anybody sick. So from that aspect, it's been challenging, but also opened up an opportunities by not going to every unit for every single small thing. We concentrated on the vacant units uh, where a team of five or six of our staff, or contractors, they go and get the unit, uh, uh, get it ready.
0: And then any additional money on the horizon uh, to fix up more of these units?
1: Yes, uh, we're very grateful. We've seen some funding in both House and Senate budget. Uh, the budget is not finalized, but we did see that it was a $10 million for each biennium year included. We are applying for additional funds from HUD. There are some funds that came as a result of the, the, the coronavirus issues and stimulus packages that's coming for the federal government. Anytime we see an opportunity, we apply for it. We were grateful that we did get additional monies for the Section 8, and that we got the uh, CFP for capital improvement project for the federal, a little over $14 million. And we are in the process of applying or additional funding as well.
0: Okay, and I know there's lots to talk about infrastructure. So, yeah, uh, anywhere that you're eligible, right, you you can uh, uh, make a play for that money.
1: Okay. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, the, the the success we've seen is uh, is a result of that. Just making sure that anytime, anytime there is an opportunity to apply, that we are we are there and we do apply. Uh, we also very grateful that. Uh, The legislature have recognized the need and continue to recognize the need, and they have been making sure that we have uh, any funding that they are able to give us. So we're very grateful for that. Uh, The governor also has included us as one of his priorities. So I think the combination, it just seems that uh, the combination of all of that, uh, it seems all the stars are lining up for us to to do more good work for for the most vulnerable population that we serve.
0: That was Hakeem Wansafi, head of the Hawaii Housing Authority, talking to us about the newly renovated state-subsidized units that are becoming available starting Friday. For links, head to our website. Wansafi tells us, though, that the 250 units are just a drop in the budget as there's an estimated quarter billion dollars worth of repairs that are needed. He is looking forward to the redevelopment of HHA's offices on School Street for hundreds of additional housing units for the needy.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance EMBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
0: You are back with the conversation. Fake news and disinformation. Boy, have we had our fill of that. How do we navigate the post-truth era? That's the subject of our segment, The Long View, with our political analyst, Neil Milner. Good morning, Neil.
3: Hi. Hi, Catherine.
0: So why do you want to talk about this?
3: Uh, Well, here's the thing. This is written, uh, it's in Walrus Magazine, which is a really good uh, Canadian publication, by Vivian Fairbank, who used to be a fact checker. Now she's a regular journalist. So the article's title says all you really need to know about what this thing is about. How do we exit the post-truth era, why fact-checking won't save us from fake news? And that's really what it's about. It's about the basic assumptions that traditional fact-checking makes and why that would turn out not to be true. And that the idea that the more checking you do and that you find what the true facts are and that you put that out there reduces the kind of disinformation that's so prevalent that the facts prevail. And every one of those assumptions are basically wrong, which has something to do with the fact-checking profession. It affects them, but more, uh, more important, it speaks to the nature of the way people think about facts and the way we think about facts and values and truth during this time. So when I read it the second time and asked some more questions, what really struck me is the similarities here to issues of science and to some of the things that public health communications people are now trying to do uh, for um, to deal with uh, the coronavirus resistance to, to vaccinations and to other kinds of things like not wearing masks.
0: Well, I think, you know, in this age of social media, right, we were seeing that, oh, people are looking for information that basically will validate their beliefs and aren't really looking to be corrected.
3: <laughs> well, that's right. But in effect, that's that's not new. I mean, she doesn't make it. That's the way people think. What's happened is basically that the context is different now. Generally, we don't have places where people have um, unpolarized views to mix with their polarized views. Uh, we used to call them cross-cutting cleavages. There aren't forums, there aren't places where people who think, you know, who essentially think like most people do, their values really affect their facts, can sit down and and talk about it, or the way we can do politics that way. But the studies of, of the way information passes on social media really shows things that are deeper than that. One of the things, for example, is that and, and this does not just apply to people with conservative beliefs or, or liberal beliefs. You, if people will admit, they've done some pretty good research on this. People will admit and understand that it's um, misinformation, and then pass it anyway. Mm. They, they 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 communicate it anyway, and the main reason they communicate it is this, and this is the center of why facts themselves don't prevail. People pick up information and react to information more on the basis of their beliefs than on the basis of the information themselves. So you get a group of people together, and you give them facts. And even if they uh, understand that they're facts and they admit to them, the nature of, if the nature of the group is such, they'll produce, they'll produce and accept um, fake information, uh, misinformation, misinformation that you're driven as much by pleasing the social groups you are in uh, as you are by anything else. Now, anybody who's listening to this and says, yeah, that's what those conservatives do, you think about how you sit around the table with your fellow liberals and the kind of information that you accept and that you don't accept. So you, you, you really have a, a, a lot of that kind of thing going, where the information, the basis of the acceptance of the information, even if you know that it's misinformation, often gets communicated and accepted because of the nature of whom you trust and whom you're trying to believe.
0: You know, um, I'm just thinking back to, you know, my former TV days during election time, we would do, you know, ad watch, right? Yeah. Because sure. the, the politicians would, you know, try and get credit for this or that, and you find out, well, they didn't really do that. It was somebody else.
3: Yeah, sure. Well, the, the real I mean, this is that that example writ large. The real question is fact-checking was always about fact-checking, and the assumption, which really doesn't make a whole lot of, well, I shouldn't say the assumption doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. The assumption is you present people with facts, and that'll That'll prevail, but she goes on to point out, which is not just a journalism thing. And we've again, we've known this for a long time. Facts are not something that you can totally separate from values. And um, people argue about what a fact is, and people argue about uh, how you interpret it, and 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 when it's important. And so, journalists who just say, "Here are the facts," are really not uh, it. it, it it doesn't, it doesn't work, and, and in fact, it's not that easy to determine what a fact is also. She does a lot of stuff in that in the article that's in instructions to how journalists can do things better. But I think the broader issue is really that we're in a, we're in a place where people who were those of us, which is pretty much all of us, um, think that we're much more rational than we are it, and it makes us think that we're accepting facts, even though the facts may be contested or wrong. I, the other thing is that whether you believe in a fact depends to a great extent on how much you trust the institution and so that's, that's producing the facts. And she says, listen, the media is very much distrusted. And if you make an argument on the basis of facts in, 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 as a journalist— that says, here they are, this is right, this is the facts, these are objectives, that, you know, that may be right in your heart of hearts, but that turns people off if they distrust the institution uh, by itself. So you're really at a place, a general place, where we really don't have a good way of dealing with the question of, of information and, mis- and misinformation. I don't know if you remember the part in the article about uh, literacy tests where um, they give exam, not, they, uh, li, uh, media literacy, and people learn what media literacy is, and they learn those kinds of things, and then they pass the stuff anyway. Uh, there is something about, uh, about passing the information that's very strong. Let me just give you a quick example of something that I thought about, two quick examples that I thought about, one of which is RAIL. Think back about how you made decision on rail. Um, You know, this is a highly technical thing about engineering and contested uh, data about whether it would reduce or not reduce uh, traffic congestion and all those sorts of things. I think a lot of folks made a decision on on the basis of whom they trusted uh, in that kind of situation, what their usual sources are. That's that's very typical. Uh, Another example is Michigan right now is in a real hot spot. It's at a crisis level for a, a, in, in a COVID surge. The governor there uh, is who has been in trouble before for trying to use rules, you know, uh, not voluntary rules, to get, get people to behave in certain ways and to get them to get the vaccination. She has this, this panel of communication experts, uh, public health communication experts. And this is what the guy said. It was actually an NPR interview yesterday. He said, look, He said the the biggest source of resistance to taking mitigation uh, methods um, uh, in Michigan and probably elsewhere are white evangelical men. They're the biggest resistors. And we are not going to be able to get them to change their minds simply by giving them the scientific facts. What we're now trying to do and get them to understand and communicate to them is that given their values, what's important, what should be important to them is protecting their families. Um, and it's a very significant difference in, in message. You're not just saying, you know, in effect, here's the science, wear a mask, get a shot. If you don't, you're, you're, you're anti-scientific. And that's, I think, what she's implying in the kind of critique that she does here. And I think that's, what's, that's what society is like now.
0: I guess yeah. We have to think. Well, what's the best way to reach people, right?
3: Well, that's yeah. right. And uh, you have to think about that in ways that you may find counterintuitive. Almost for sure, you'll find counterintuitive. But it also may may um, it may be passionately different from what you believe. Um, you know, you may have to behave towards somebody else in ways that are contrary to how you want to believe. You may not want to say, in effect. You're not paying attention to the science. Get the shot, you dummy. Which is how um, you don't care and communicate in other ways. And I think what she's suggesting is that's the direction in which this, uh, society has moved, where belief and tr- where whom we bl- whom we trust is more important than uh, than the than the so-called facts themselves.
0: Yeah, Food for thought.
3: Message. It's just it's become a more significant one, and we're in a, a We're in a society now where it's harder to uh, bring people together.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Neil.
3: You're welcome. Take care.
0: Neil Milner is a retired professor of political science who joins us as a contributing editor with his segment, The Long View.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
0: At this time, we're going to reach out across the continent. Uh, joining us from Washington, D.C. for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby. He's a story about the chances of getting more federal money for our ballooning rail project. Good afternoon, Nick.
4: Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I recall last month folks were absolutely giddy to learn that we got like, what, $70 million uh, in the uh, uh, bailout last month for the pandemic?
4: Right, well, so what had happened um, last month when the uh, $1.9 trillion COVID uh, relief package was passed was U.S. Senator Brian Schatz um, was able to secure about $70 million in that to help out Honolulu's rail project. Um, Now, $70 million might sound like a lot of money to you or me or most people. (laughs) but in terms of this rail project, it's really not a lot. I mean, this this is a an infrastructure project that has ballooned in price from 5.2 billion dollars to now more than 12.4 billion dollars, um, and it's also uh, well behind schedule. Um, if you'll remember, uh, we should have been able to ride the train this year. Yes. Um, in fact, last year even, um, uh, but now it's not expected to open until 2031 and it's also under criminal investigation. Um, now my story of course, today, um, sort of takes a view of, uh, how is Honolulu going to pay for, uh, this project and will the federal government help out?
0: Well, you know, I was, uh, intrigued to see in your, um, in your article that, uh, Uh, the mayor uh, sent a letter to uh, Schatz uh, and our other members of our federal delegation asking them to help lobby for an additional $800 million.
4: That's right. That's right. So um, President Joe Biden, of course, is um, proposing infusing billions of dollars more into the nation's infrastructure, and part of that includes money for rail transit. Um, which is a priority for the the president and his administration. Uh, Now, city officials, of course, are hoping that they can uh, get a piece of that pie for the the rail project. And the the piece that they're asking for is specifically $800 um, million to help them with their shortfall. Now, in Washington, that causes a few problems again because of all the pro- uh, because of all the issues the rail project is facing. Uh, it puts our Hawaii delegation and in particular Brian Schatz and uh, Ed Case, who are appropriators, out here in the position of asking for more money for a project that is looked at as um, problematic uh, by, by many in Washington because of uh, the, the fact that it is over budget and behind schedule and the subject of ongoing criminal investigation.
0: Now, you were uh, at a press briefing uh, earlier this week uh, about the uh, president's infrastructure po- proposal.
4: That's right. And while I was there, I had an opportunity to ask uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, about Honolulu's rail project. Now, I knew that him and Senator Brian Schott had had conversations of, about the project. And so I asked him directly, you know, what are the chances that a project like such as Honolulu's rail will get federal funding through this infrastructure package? And, you know, while he um, didn't outright say it's not going to get money, he did say that in general, the Department of Transportation and the Federal Transit Administration has a, quote, very high standard for quality and delivery, which, you know, might not sound too good for a project uh, that has uh, been known as having some of the biggest cost overruns of any transit projects in, in America.
0: Well, I, I, I imagine that he just says, hey, look, there's got to be a high bar. There's got to be accountability.
4: Yeah, and I think that the federal government does want to see a plan from the city of Honolulu as it moves forward and a plan that they can trust. And I think at the end of the day, that's what uh, Senator Brian Schatz says is necessary, especially if there's going to be any chance for him and other members of our delegation to secure more funds. You know, they say, play it straight. Tell us what you think this project is going to cost. Tell us how you're actually going to build it by the time you say you're going to build it. And once we can believe you, maybe we can help you out and figure out a way to get it done.
0: All right. Well, we will have uh, Lori uh, Kaikina on tomorrow's show, and we'll ask her about that. But thanks so much, Nick.
4: Thank you. I appreciate the time.
0: That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check.
2: Support for HPR comes from Pro Service Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. Proservice.com slash hrexperts or by calling 808-207-7634.
0: Here on the show, Wednesday listeners get their weekly dose of Hawaii's natural world with our special segment, Manu Minute. We kicked the series off back in October with a song of the EEV. Since then, Dr. Patrick Hart has introduced us to almost 20 different bird songs. Today, we're rebroadcasting our first conversation with Patrick. He heads up the Listening Observatory for Hawaiian Ecosystems Bioacoustics Lab. It's at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. He shares how he got into the field as well as, as his favorite, Manu.
5: I think it began when I arrived in Hawaii about 30 years ago now as a grad student. And uh, for my Ph.D. work, I lived up in the forest at Hokalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge. And I would just live in the forest for weeks at a time in a tent, <laughs> pretty primitive camp, and just spend all day, you know, um, studying the behavior of just this incredible community of Native forest birds up there. So yeah, that was just the beginning. And I've just, you know, been working with them at some level ever since then, really.
0: And so the what what is it that I guess you're struck by with this creature?
5: Well, it's beautiful. (laughs) It's iconic. It's just an iconic Hawaiian honeycreeper. It's just a great representative of, of Hawaiian forest birds. You know, it's bright, orange-red. It's got a long, curved orange bill and bright orange legs, and it's just really vocal. It's constantly singing. It's found on all of the islands, at least originally. Um, you know, a lot of our forest birds are only are, are single-island endemics, but the eevee is found on all of them. Uh, it, it has, I guess, co-evolved with a lot of the plant species, so it feeds mostly on nectar from this from a variety of, uh, of native Hawaiian plants, and a lot of the flowers have evolved to fit perfectly with the bill of uh, nectar-feeding honeycreepers like the e-e-v. So it's just truly a great example of just a native Hawaiian bird that's been part of the environment for a million years or more.
0: So do you recall the first time you actually saw one? I mean, you probably heard it before you saw it. <laughs>
5: Yeah, like most birds, you hear most of them before you see them. And the eevee particularly notable because it sounds like a squeaky gate in the forest and um, kind of a very nasally squawk sound. Yeah, I was on a field trip with my University of Hawaii bird biology class way back in the early 90s, and they had nets set up at Hakalao, and we actually caught one and was able to hold it in my hand. The first day I I ever saw one, I was able wow. to hold one, too. So. That was pretty special. The Hawaiian honeycreepers, you know, they, they've been here for over five million years. So before most of the main Hawaiian islands had even formed, the honeycreepers were here already. And over this five million years, they evolved in the absence of mosquitoes. There's no mosquitoes native to Hawaii. And so they lost resistance to any sort of mosquito-borne disease like avian malaria. And when humans got here, We brought mosquitoes, we brought birds with the malaria in them, and mosquitoes would go and and bite the non native birds that humans brought and then go transmit it to the native birds that had lost their resistance. And so the Eevee are particularly notable in that just it's been shown that a single mosquito bite is enough to kill an Eevee. We feel, you know, like we're in particularly big hurry to save these birds because even though you can still see them in a lot of parts of the islands they have been declining pretty consistently over time it's really just such an important piece of what makes Hawaii Hawaii is is the native birds you know they're, they've been so important to Hawaiians since they arrived they're just incredibly important to the ecology of the islands they're the major pollinators for a lot of the native plant species. They play real important roles in the forest as seed dispersers for most of the native Hawaiian plants and trees. It's a particularly important problem right now because with global warming, the mosquitoes seem to be increasing in elevation. So right now, most of the native birds are found in the high elevation forests where there's no mosquitoes. But the mosquitoes are increasing in elevation, and so the birds are declining because of that especially on Kauai and on Maui. You know, we're in danger of losing a couple species on Kauai and on Maui in the next possibly even decade or two.
0: Well, we did spotlight a project there on Maui where they Uh were trying to transmigrate a a population of the birds, the QEQ, and sadly, uh, where they were taking them to, those birds quickly succumbed to mosquitoes.
5: So, you know, right now we have other technologies that are on the horizon, you know, for landscape scale control of mosquitoes using a variety of techniques. In the next couple of years, it's possible to control mosquitoes in some of these forests with some of these developing technologies. So it's really just kind of a race against time, honestly, to get this done before we lose any more species. We'll be talking about the uau, which is a seabird, and that one flies over people's heads at night in the dark when they probably don't even know it, but you can possibly hear its calls as it flies up Mauka to nest in the high elevation areas. One we'll be highlighting is the song of the last bird known as the Oo, and it was last seen in the alakai of Kauai in the late 1980s. But we'll be playing the song of the last oh, singing for its mate that doesn't exist anymore.
0: Oh, that's yeah. heartbreaking.
5: Right. We don't want that to happen with any more of our birds. In our lab at UH Hilo, one thing we're doing is is using the song of birds to improve the way that we monitor them, like monitor their distribution and abundance. You know, we're working on developing new ways to better understand how many that there are left and where they're located using their song. So you can put out, you know, automatic recorders in the forest and then you can develop new machine learning algorithms to detect the songs of these rare species in the forest. That's one of the developing technologies we're working on and and also just understanding the role of and the importance of song and how variable it is with all these different bird species.
0: And have you gotten pretty good at mimicking these bird calls?
5: No, I'm terrible at it, Uh, actually.
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I can share that one day I was out in in my garden, and I heard an unusual call, and so Mm -hmm. I tried to, you know, mimic it uh, with the whistle, and the bird landed on my head.
5: (laughs) Well, that's pretty good. That's a good (laughs) skill you have. There's not many (laughs) birds that do that.
0: Or well, it was people some-
5: that can do that. It
0: was somebody's pet, but, you know, it wasn't oh, an okay. endangered bird or anything like <laughs> that. But, uh, well, you need to work on your bird calls then, sir. Yeah, no, most of our
5: Hawaiian birds, they just kind of look at you and laugh when you try and mimic them and get them to come close. <laughs> There's a few, though, that will come.
0: So how different are they, let's say, from the bird calls from, you know, the Philippines or Florida? Well,
5: one thing about our Hawaiian birds is they Each species has a huge variety of different songs and calls that it makes. It seems like most parts of the world you go to, the birds have, you know, one or two songs. Not all of them, but a lot of them. But in Hawaii, they're just incredibly variable. They all have really big repertoires. Oftentimes, even individual birds we're finding, like the omao, it's a native Hawaiian thrush. Every individual omao sings differently than its neighbor, and they They seem to make up songs as they go along. Really? (laughs) Seems like it.
0: Is there any, I don't know, any explanation?
5: We haven't figured that one out yet, no.
0: Okay,
5: all right. (laughs) Something about living on islands, I think. I think it's something about living on an island.
0: We have lots to crow about, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a particular favorite?
5: I do. You know, it's one that most people haven't seen. It's called the Hawaii Akepa. And it, was, it only lives in a few high elevation forests on the Big Island. And it's a bright orange bird. It's about the color of one of those traffic pylons that you see in the middle of the road. Wow. And they're tiny. You know, they're about the size of your thumb. <laughs> and and they, they nest in cavities high up in the trees. And, yeah, that's, that was one of the birds that I, I focused on when I was a grad student. So I've always just got a soft spot in my heart for the Hawaii akepa.
0: Okay, all right. Well, we're we're going to look forward to hearing that segment. But oh, yeah, thank we'll you.
5: Play thank you one.
0: so much, Patrick Hart. And uh, we'll look forward to learning more about our Hawaiian birds.
5: Well, thank you very much.
0: That was Patrick Hart of the Bioacoustics Lab at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. You can check out all the episodes of Manu Minute at hawaiipublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.